If you don't know who Marco Sofredi is, well, you should. At least that's what the author of See You Tomorrow, the epic account of the disappearance of the famous Chamonix snowboarder on Everest in 2002, Jeremy Evans, believes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist, and we have a very, very special show for you today. Jeremy Evans joins us. Evans, he's a climber, a snowboarder, and an award-winning journalist, among many other things, including a teacher, a professor, and the Lake Tahoe Community College soccer coach. He joined our podcast to talk about the fascinating story that has slipped through the cracks of mainstream snow sports. So much so that Evans has conversed with professional riders who have never even heard of Sofredi and also encountered random people at restaurants who can talk all about him. You know, to a certain degree, Sofredi's life is shrouded in mystery on many levels. First of all, there is the fact that an individual who grew up in Chamonix, the capital of big mountain climbing and riding, where families routinely bury their dead sons and daughters, almost sacrificially to the surrounding steep slopes. He learned to snowboard at 16 and then skied one of the most courageous lines in the Mont Blanc region, the Mallory on the north face of the Aiguille du Midi. Uh-oh, the pronunciation is, it's coming out here. <laughs> but that line features 3,000 vertical feet, 55-degree slopes. Sofredi did that one year after learning how to snowboard, just a 17-year-old. You know, it was almost as if he was predestined for this powder-filled purpose, and he quickly checked off every major route and first descent in his homeland before venturing to bigger and better things in the Himalayas. That is, of course, where the primary mystery remains. Sofredi became the first person to snowboard down Everest in 2001. He gleefully hiked to the top and ripped down as a member of a party which included Vale's Ellen Miller, the first American woman to summit from both sides, and she's still just one of a handful of women worldwide to do so. Sofredi then returned a year later to attempt to descend via the Hornby in Kalor. The Hornbein Clore, of course, was named after Tom Hornbein, an Estes Park resident who was a member of the 1963 Everest Expedition. That year, he and Willie Unsold pioneered the route, which has only been successfully ascended by nine people since. Many skiers and snowboarders consider it sort of the magnum opus of big mountain riding, still yet to be composed, played, and heard. But Sofredi, he made it to the top of Everest again in 2002 to try and do it himself. He waved goodbye to his Sherpa at the top, and that last photo that we have is of him saying goodbye as he descends towards the Kulor. Of course, he was never seen or heard from again, and his body has never been recovered. You know, the cool part is, though, his story isn't just one of a daredevil pushing the limits. It is truly about special, a special and unique individual who, though only given two decades on this earth, lived each moment with intention. As a writer... My conversation with Evans took many turns, and, you know, I see a bit of myself in him as well. He was someone who started in sports journalism, moved to teaching, he's raising a family, and, of course, he spotted great stories and chased them down with fervor and energy. I found it fascinating to have him detail how he gathered his information for this tale, getting to know Marco's family and friends, and traveling to all of the various areas in Europe and Asia. We, of course, dissect this book, and I ask him some tough questions that, if you read the book yourself, you probably were wondering as well. I would encourage you to grab a copy of See You Tomorrow and read it before you actually listen to this podcast. We don't hold back, so spoiler alert. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Cedar Skier Podcast.
I love to help, uh, you know, writers that are trying to write their first book because I was there too at one point. So yeah, wherever the conversation takes us, I'm okay. Okay, cool, cool. Um, well, I guess let's start then. I, I sent you those questions, but do you want to just kind of, you know, introduce yourself and talk about kind of your background, career progression and how you ended up where you are now? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, obviously my name is Jeremy Evans. I'm now the author of three books, uh, the most recent being See You Tomorrow, about the dis disappearance of Shamanese snowboarder Marco Sofredi on Mount Everest in 2002. Uh, I got my start, I guess, I don't know how, how I got here. I'll try to do a crash course version. I graduated from college in June of 2000 from Marquette University. I was a journalism major. I had a couple different job offers. None of them were great, but I did end up getting another one from the Carson City uh, daily, which is about 25 miles from Lake Tahoe as a sports writer. And I took that, that was a Swift newspaper, um, you know, conglomerate. And they had a couple different, like six different newspapers around the lake. So I actually lived in Carson city for about three to six months. I can't really remember exactly the time, but I was coming up to Tahoe a lot. And I eventually moved to Tahoe within six months of working at the Carson city paper. And then I stayed there for three years. Uh, that's where I learned to kind of to snowboard and climb and I really learned about the Marco Sofredi story as I was working on the desk, the sports writing desk, because one night in 2001, an AP story came across the wire that a French snowboarder was the first to snowboard Mount Everest. And I had just started to learn how to snowboard and climb. That's why I went to Tahoe and I was doing a lot of stuff in the Sierra Nevada and the Cascades. And he just seemed like this amazing figure, like how cool is that? But also it was very early in the internet days. I mean, it wasn't quite, well, it was almost quite the AOL days where you'd hit return and go make a quesadilla and come back and your page is loaded or something. I didn't know. <laughs> but there wasn't a lot out there. There wasn't a lot on this figure. And then I remember about a year later, just over a year later, another AP story came across the wire that the same snowboarder was now, you know, missing mm -hmm. on the North Face and on Everest. And so obviously he seemed like this larger than life figure. I asked around people I knew in Tahoe and they kind of knew about him, but there wasn't much in magazines. There wasn't much in movies about him. And that was really the only way to get to know somebody, a pro snowboarder, maybe through competitions. And he wasn't doing that really. So uh, he just kind of stayed, stayed embedded in my mind uh, for a few years. But after I left the, Car the Carson City newspaper in 2003, went to a, a larger paper in Vancouver, Washington, lived in Portland, Oregon for a year, uh, tried to convince myself snowboarding at Mount Hood's the same as living in Tahoe. And it wasn't. So I, a year later, I came back and I was working on my first book called In Search of Powder about the disappearing ski bum. And I just started going to different ski towns around the West and seeing a real change in, you know, cost of living. Uh, people were getting pushed out. It seemed like, you know, it was much more difficult for the resorts to hire kind of that young American college graduate. Uh, people were leaving the ski bum life a little earlier because things got a little more difficult. And so that was really my first book. And I came back to Tahoe and I knew the editor of the Tahoe Daily Tribune and he gave me another sports writer job. And I worked that for about three years, three and a half years as I wrote my first book. And then right when my first book was published, I went back to get my master's in teaching because my wife was a teacher. I was quite jealous of her. She always got, uh, you know, summers off and I've been taking leaves of absences to go to South America and climb or do whatever. I thought, well, maybe I can have a profession. I just get three quarters of the year off. Uh, that was kind of a silly on my part because once I got into teaching I realized how difficult it was you almost kind of need those breaks and you work seven days a week 365 you're always thinking yeah. about your students but I did fall in love with uh, the teaching aspect so 
I left the Tahoe Tribune, got my master's in teaching from Sierra Nevada College up on the North Shore of Lake Tahoe, a, a small liberal arts, arts school. And then I started adjunct, I was an adjunct professor at Lake Tahoe Community College in English for about four years. During that time from 2011 to 15, I wrote my second book called The Battle for Paradise, which is about a small town in Costa Rica, surf town that kind of fights to fought its, uh, save its wave, if you will, against a tuna farm company. It's kind of a controversial tuna farm project and learned about a really interesting town in Costa Rica. And while I thought that book was a better book than my first book, um, maybe I just wanted to pretend like it was. I certainly wasn't near and dear to my heart. It wasn't mountains. It wasn't snowboarding. Uh, but I certainly saw some parallels between what was going on in that small surf town with some of the issues that were going on in ski towns. And so I eventually, around 2015, got an opportunity to be a full-time English teacher at the local high school here in South Tahoe. So I did that. And along that whole way, you know, I was a college soccer player and I love soccer. I played at Marquette University and once I got into teaching and I had the background in soccer, I was just like, well, why don't I try this coaching thing? And so between 2000 and 2015, I started being a high school coach, really fell in love with it. And then in 2015, I got the opportunity to be the head women's soccer coach at Lake Tahoe Community College. They had just started a new collegiate program and I had had some success as a high school coach in Nevada. And then I, I took over that. So I really have done a, a lot of different things, but writing to me has done everything for me. It's been all my relationships, all my networking. It's really kept me rooted in Lake Tahoe. And along the way, my wife got a job at a school district. She's 13 years in. And so we're pretty entrenched now. We have a couple of kids in the school district and the coaching is how I make 95% of my money. And I have a passion for that too, but certainly, you know, have a passion for writing. So I guess there's kind of the, from 2000 to 2021, uh, the life of Jeremy Evans. That, that is so awesome. It reminds me of uh, Doug Wilson is this theologian who's also a writer and I follow his blogs. And he said in one of his books, like, you know, there's all these hotshot 23 year olds. So I want to be a writer. I want to write these books. It's like, you have to live before you can write because you have nothing to say, basically. And that kind of resonated with me a little bit as well, where I had kind of like this bouncing around. I, I was elementary music teacher, uh, uh, NCAA D1 Nordic ski coach after starting to learn the sport like eight months before I was hired. So it was like, you could, that that pretty much summarizes that whole story of chapter of my life. Band director, I taught fifth grade online. And it's like, I feel like, okay, now that I met the Vale Dave, it's like, I have something to kind of like say a little bit, but yours, you know, dwarfs mine <laughs> quite a bit too. It's like, oh my gosh, I have so many things I wanted to interject. I actually wanted to go all the way back. Marquette, so did you grow up in the Midwest? No, I, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, actually. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, what I brought you over there? Well, it was really soccer. So I was yeah. a good player, but not a very good student. And so I had a lot of interest from Division One schools, but my grades were, I was basically a questionable prospect, right? So I had to go the junior college route, and that really taught me how to be a student, and that was fun. I was either going to go into journalism or education. And then when it was time to transfer from Phoenix College, my two-year institution, you know, good nationally ranked JC program, all my friends were going to West Coast schools in New Mexico and California, and I just wanted to do something different, and Marquette was definitely different, and Marquette was actually probably the best academic institution that showed interest in me as an athlete, and I thought it was a chance to maybe have some redemption, because uh, it wasn't like I was an unintelligent person, I just was not focused as a high school student. So definitely, that's, I thought there, hey, it's only a couple of years. You can go anywhere for a couple of years. Certainly, I was 
not dreading the Midwest, but I miss looking out and seeing relief and seeing mountains. Um, and so I knew I was going to come back out West, but I just thought just for the experience, do something different because everybody else I knew was staying out West. So growing up in Tucson, like you didn't, you didn't snowboard or ski stuff as a kid. Like when did you actually start doing that? So I did ski as a kid. I always okay. call myself a jean skier from Arizona. There's, there's a ski resort outside Tucson called Mount Lemon. I used okay. to ditch high skiing up there it's about 60 miles from mexico border uh it doesn't open every single year but when it opens it's got a few runs and it was it was huge for me as a you know a teenager and we'd also go to sunrise ski area which is on the new mexico border up in northeastern arizona arizona snow bowl and flagstaff and so that's i skied the whole time growing up but when i say i skied it was like a handful of times a year i was definitely a soccer right. player I come to Tahoe in the winter of 2000, 2021, or sorry, 2001. And I realized, oh yeah, I'm not a very good skier at all. Right. Um, and so I just picked up a snowboard at Homewood Mountain Resort one day and went with a couple other skier friends and they just left me there. And I just took the snowboarding because I realized like, well, hey, I'm not really a good skier by Tahoe standard. I might as well learn the snowboarding thing. And yeah, I just, just took to it from there. I mean, I've skied a few times, obviously, since I started snowboarding. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I was a big time winter athlete, but I did ski a little bit growing up and really got in the outdoors growing up, like hiking, backpacking, peak bagging, stuff like that. I, I would do that coming up to Arizona. Yeah, which I mean, the the Marco character definitely combines the whole mountaineering with snowboarding. I mean, that's really fascinating just from the sports physiological side that fascinates me a lot too, thinking about how fit he was. And, and I know there was some comments about that and just how he could hike a lot faster, you know, in the book, but as far as for you too, just actually wanted to go back that in search of powder. And I Googled it while you were talking, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is an awesome angle for a book. <laughs> like, how did you, how did that one come about? And what was it like to do that book? Cause that sounds literally like the best excuse to go travel to all the best like ski towns and write and stuff too. But like, was it successful? I mean, how did it go? Yeah, it's been successful. As far as books go, it's sold the most. That's also because it's been out for like a decade. Yeah. Um, it wasn't my intention to write that book. And that was never going to be the theme of the book until I started to go into these towns. And then that reoccurring kind of complaints that laments that the town's not what it used to be. There's not as many young people. It's harder to be a ski bum. It just started popping up at every single town. So I just kind of went with it. I really just wanted to write about ski bums and how I had left my job in Carson City for a bigger newspaper in Portland or in the Portland metro area, thinking that was going to cure all my ills. I wanted to work for a big metro. And then I'm like, you know what? Maybe those ski bums in Tahoe have something else to teach everybody else in America about just following your passion, living your life not looking at material goods as a way to quantify where you're at in life. And so that's really why I started to write the book in search of powder, which is as I explored and went into these towns, Jackson hole and Aspen and Vail, uh, mammoth and Tahoe, of course, you realize that this reoccurring pattern of a disappearing ski bum was coming up. And so um, some say it was kind of ahead of its curve a little bit because it's even more difficult now in these towns It's more expensive Right. Uh, but certainly that, that, that those trends were already kind of occurring and really in the big towns like a Telluride or an Aspen, they were already happening in the 2000s. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely a great excuse. I got to do a lot of snowboarding, but really, I just got to meet a lot of cool people. And it was a sad book for me to write in some ways, just because I'm a big believer in mountain towns. I love the culture of mountain towns. I like the people, you know, it really isn't about making money. It's about having fun because life is too short. You know, obviously the Marco story is, is a clear example of that. And so I was always attracted to the mountain lifestyle. 
And so just when I thought that there was something that was threatening it, that became more like the news angle, if you will. And sure. as a journalist, I kind of sniffed that out and I just followed that scent to where it led me. So obviously, you know, it means a lot having a relationship with the content you're writing about and how huge that is. And that plays out, I think, in the the See You Tomorrow book, but obviously these other ones. What um, what can you say about some of the adventures you've done yourself to kind of go like, hey, I can I can write about this. I, ha- I have some context. Um, and yeah, yeah. As far as how that and how that's impacted your writing and with this book, especially. Yeah, I never wrote like to, with the idea I wanted to write a book. I mean, I love writing the, the small, the, the daily grind of a small newspaper got to me a bit because I was writing about, you know, Little League games and high school games. Not that I didn't care about those people. Right. But it wasn't really satisfying as a writer. I mean, once I learned how to write on deadline and I learned the ins and outs, I was yearning to write about something deeper, you know, longer form. And, you know, I wrote in some magazines, of course, but just the idea of a book seemed daunting and is, is always daunting. And I just feel like it gives me the forum to really write, go into issues I wasn't able to as a newspaper reporter. And I always kind of joke that I wasn't really a sports journalist. I was a calendar journalist, meaning that, okay, the state championships this time and the rodeos this time. And it was like the calendar throughout the year dictated what I covered. And I just was kind of unfulfilling at some point. And so when I got into teaching, I had a lot more extra time to, to dive into subjects. So I wasn't writing as much, but I was researching more. And then spending my writing on those kind of book long form projects. So I, I just, I didn't know I could write a book. I just would kind of get interested in stories. And then you come across one like Marco and that's big enough to kind of carry itself. It's its own book. And what happened there was, you know, I did a lot of mountaineering in the Cascades, Sierra Nevada. I started going to Mexico to do higher altitude. I've done like a half dozen trips to South America, to Peru, Argentina, Ecuador, kept climbing mountains, Bolivia. And when I started to write about Marco, I realized like he had gone to all those places. I mean, my favorite place in the world to climb is a place called Huaraz, Peru. And there's a range there called the Cordillera Blanca. And Marco had made a trip there and made a bunch of first descents on mountains. I could barely get up their easy routes. Right. Wow. And he was, he was climbing more difficult routes and snowboarding down them. And so we just, obviously he's an amazing athlete and snowboarder, but he had been to places that I had been to. And I just was able to kind of sample the lifestyle where he like went, you know, head deep into it. Did you so go I, to some of those places just like as a teacher? Hey, I've got some time. Let's save up some money, go on a trip, you know, kind of more like that. Or was it on an assignment? I assume not, right? Like you were just kind of like, I'm going to do this trip. I, I'm interested. Let's go to Peru. Let's up the game. Up. It was, was it kind of like that progression? Yeah, definitely like that. I mean, my biggest one, I, I took about a four month leave of absence in 2007. Okay. from the newspaper and I know that caused a lot of problems within Swift newspapers because my sports editor had a cover for me and I basically got my job back but I didn't get paid I saved a bunch of money so I always just saved a bunch of money and then asked for two or three weeks off sure. um you know I never I was always attracted to Nepal and the Himalaya or even like Denali but the issue with those is you're there for weeks and weeks before you make your attempt yeah Where, when I started hanging out with people in Tahoe and climbing circles that they're like, you got to get to South America you can in two or three weeks, you can get acclimatized and you can climb two or three or four peaks. Um, so that's kind of what attracted me. And obviously the cost, you know, I was, I was broke. My first pair of mountaineering boots were size eight and I wore size 10, but they were plastic boots. And I was going to take them to Aconcagua in Argentina. And then I ended up getting frostbite at about 21,000 feet on summit day because my feet swelled. I didn't know that like your feet would swell. 
And then of course I'm wearing boots that are two sizes too small. And I remember walking back to camp by myself. My partner went to the summit and I was like, I'm never going to do that again. I'm broke. Um, I can only afford those boots because they're like $300 boots. And so I would just go to South America because it was cheap. Um, you know, you get out on the mountains. I mean, you save for $10 in a hostel and you get breakfast. You go to the market, you can live on five to $10 a day. And then you get down the mountains, you're staying for free. There's not big permit fees. There's not a bunch of costs for guides. You know, you're carrying your own weights. And so that just became a very affordable way for me to climb and travel. That's interesting. Oh, man. Yeah, you've got on some awesome epic adventures, I guess. So let's get into the book then. Can you give us a quick synopsis on the, I guess you already kind of explained the Marcos and Freddy story. Actually, you know how you came about it where, hey, here's this guy first snowboarded Everest, um, and then disappeared on it. Um, and you said you kind of saw it across the AP wire and yeah, you're right. Oh, one, it was like, internet wasn't really big enough. Cause even if you try to Google stuff on him now, it's a little bit like, there's not a lot there, but, and yet he's, he's this shamany legend. So yeah. there, there is like stuff known about him. In fact, I think in the book, you mentioned like excerpts from other books and were some of those actually like bios on him then too? Like people have now gone and sort of done some of the things. Was that before your time? Like, like, is your book sort of, yeah, it's the first English version of the, uh, you know, covering it obviously, but there's other stuff that came before it. And so people in France are like, oh, wow, I guess America cares about this guy. Finally. <laughs> you know, like how, how would you contextualize it? I guess. Well, yeah, with Marco. So I was a, I was a teacher at South Tower High School and I just was poking around the internet. Honestly, I really was. It's after school. I was kind of bummed because I wasn't out snowboarding because I got out at 240 and I was like, ah, I don't know if this teaching gig is good for my snowboarding life. And uh, I just, I don't know, things go through my head sometimes. I just did a search and I realized like, what ever happened to Marco Safredi? Really? I mean, that's what it was. And I realized that well, I never found him. There wasn't much still written about him in English. And so I contacted a photographer there called Rene Robert, who photographed a lot of Marco's, I would say, expeditions to South America, but also in Chamonix. And we just, I started a connection there and I just started poking around some people that are in Chamonix. And I realized that it's not a coincidence that there's not a lot written about him because he really didn't care about the limelight. I mean, people say that, yeah. but then, you know, they put little, they plant little seeds, right? They're writer friends, influencers, write stuff. Well, he really didn't have much. And so there have been, there were two French language books written on Marco, but they're more biographical, not narrative. And they were shortly after he disappeared. So I connected with the writers for both those. And they kind of helped me. I mean, mine's more narrative style. It incorporates people like Perbatashi and Russell Bryce, which is not really the case of those books. And I would say the story of Marco disappearing, it almost became historical in that him disappearing and then him remaining disappearing uh, disappeared kind of marinated for a bit. So it made the story a little bit more interesting. And I brought in a kind of more of an American English language. We talked with people like Jeremy Jones, the other people have been up there. Those books didn't really have that. Um, now he was very, very talented, but he knew enough that when he went and did certain things in the Alps, he had to have someone document them because no one would believe him. And so that's where Rene Robert came in. And so that's why I contacted him first. And I just assumed, like a lot of people, when you see the pictures of him, whatever's on the internet, he's a young, brash, cocky kid that maybe deserved this fate. Like, well, you're a coot. What are you doing still bringing up Everest? You got piercings. You got dyed hair. Um, you look like a total punk rocker. You got what you deserved. I mean, that's kind of what a lot of people think when they first know anything about Marco. 
But as I dug deeper, that's not really who he was at all. And, you know, Ellen Miller of Vail, who I connected with, we'll talk about a little bit. She was one of my first interviews. And I just started to get a different side of him that, well, hold on. He's a teenager. He's not in his 20s and 30s. He picked up a snowboard by 16. He was one of the best in the world, if not the best, within a couple of years. Um, he was a prodigy. He was uber talented. Um, he grew up in the cradle, really, of snowboarding life or ski mountaineering, snowboard mountaineering in Chamonix. So he was on the steepest mountains, uh, the most kind of laissez-faire you are about death and danger and risk. So all this stuff goes into a cocktail that you get someone like Marco, you're going to have a figure that's going to be hard for him to live the rest of his life. It's just the way things work there. And so it wasn't like he had a death wish. I think that's the most important thing. People think, well, yes, what do you think is going to happen? It's like, well, <laughs> nobody does anything extraordinary in life without risk taking. And Marco was a big risk taker, but he was well prepared. The more I talked with all of his friends, um, you know, I put that in the book. He used to build ramps in his backyard and try to stand on a snowboard at 50 degrees, 60 degrees, 70 degrees, and just, you know, use his tools. And he always took care of his edges and he always, you know, was waxing his board. He wasn't doing things willy nilly. He would always do research on big routes. He had a lot of reverence for climbers and skiers before him. And once I got to know that side of him, sure, there was the brash 18, 19 year old. We're all a certain way at that age. But there was a very caring, uh, loving person there. And he was very close with his family. Right. And so uh, once I got past the barrier of like Rene Robert, Ellen Miller, Russell Bryce, I contacted them. Then it was time to go over to Chamonix in 2017 and see if I could connect with any of his family, not to write a book. I mean, the idea was not to write a book. It was just, can I learn more about him? Is there even a book here? And that's the thing. When you start to write a book, it's more like you're just going to connect with people and get information. And then once you get that information, the light bulb goes off like, ah, you know, I, th I think there might be a book here. And so that point didn't happen until the summer of 2017 when I went and stayed in his family campground and then connected with his uh, oldest sister, Valerie, and had a conversation with her. And she was pretty tough. Like she did not want to talk to me. She was very specific what I could use and not use. Don't put this stuff on Facebook. And so I, I had a lot of good information, but I didn't know how to quite use it. And so that took a couple of years to massage to get the family on board because they had put this memory of their son and their brother in a place that it was safe now. You know, obviously the pain and the hurt was there. But now here's this American 18 years later coming to resurrect all these bad memories. And so that was a difficult part to write the book. And so second, that, that, I just have one thing I want to interject here. Um, going back a little bit, first of all, you did do a really good job in this book of, of I think, encapsulating Marco's entire character and being. And in fact, the lack of pictures in it, the middle section with a picture on the copy you gave me anyway, was like, when it when I sort of started Googling him and then you saw like the purple dyed hair and the earrings, I was like, huh, after like reading the first 140 pages of the book, you know, like you, you hear the story about him as an 11 year old digging his own aquarium and studying fish for hours. And you're like, he sort of seems almost like, I guess I was sort of a dorky nerd like that when I was a kid, but it's like kind of weird, right? And, and you're like, that's pretty interesting. Like you don't picture him as being, and then there's a couple anecdotes in there where he kind of comes across as that punk rock, standard mid, late 90s guy which they're like oh okay i guess i get this but definitely 
yeah, a more well-rounded figure than just your, I guess, prototypical snowbird. So I, I wanted to compliment you on that, but I, I would assume that would be a little bit more interesting. And then the other thing I was going to say, wait, you didn't, you didn't think there was a book there and you went all the way to France in 2017 and you're like, well, maybe I'll run. Oh man. I don't know if I could convince someone, my wife of leaving without. <laughs> I was definitely hopeful there was a book. I did set it up. My wife joined me a couple of weeks into the trip. We the help route. We hiked from Chamonix to Zermatt. So that way if, the family shut me out because you can't write a book like this without the family being on board. And so I thought they shut me out. At least I got to spend some time in the Alps and hike with my wife to uh, yeah. Switzerland. Uh, but yeah, it, it was still a tough point. I mean, I knew at some point I talked to the parents. He had another sister, Shudi, and he had a lot of close friends. And so I, Bertrand, a filmmaker that did a lot of, he went to Choi U with them. He was supposed to go to Everest with them. But, you know, Marco was just on a trajectory that he was more serious and more into a snowboarding than all of his friends. And so, yeah, as I talked to him more and more, I'm like, well, I gotta talk to more people outside of his friends and family. And then you come across people like Ellen Miller, adults in their thirties and forties that met him on expeditions. And just the same patterns emerge that he's, he looks wild and crazy, but he's like a child, you know? And he kind of remained that youthful spirit to the very end. And I know that, you know, passed away at 33, presumably, um, but he never lost that. And I think that's why I incorporated that idea of the, of the little prince, which was really an interesting angle because I only thought of that angle from Ellen Miller. I, I, when I was interviewing Ellen Miller early on, I was going through the notes and I always transcribed my notes. And she mentioned that she would visit his tent and he would have this book next to him, next to his sleeping bag. And that's the only time I got the mention of it at any time in the research process. So I finally asked his sister, about that he's like oh yeah that was his favorite book you know him and my mom my mom used to read it to him it's such a great book he loved that book and so that's how I ended up getting the thread of the little prince and then as you read the little prince and you can parallel with Marco's life it's eerily similar um right and who they were what they look like and how they kind of viewed life and so yeah that was a fun from a writing perspective that was a fun thread to kind of uh you know or sorry needle to thread but it didn't really emerge till late in the writing process. And I kind of had to blow up the book a little bit and rework that in there. I was yeah. kind of wondering that. And yeah, I had that in our, our agenda of like getting to, okay, this little Prince thing, because, you know, I would assume you had the light bulb moment of, whoa, this is like a really cool literary thing going on that we could really center the book around, which you kind of ended up doing in a very emotional way. Um, how did you connect with Ellen did you get like some sort of manifest of like all the hikers on the trip and sort of oh wow there's someone from Colorado and uh did that is that how that worked out yeah so obviously it was a 2000 expeditions in the early 2000s like the Everest expedition one with Ellen and then obviously the one when he went back and uh there was just like a list of team members I just started jotting down those names and just contacting them and most of these people particularly back then were big time accomplished climbers and athletes in their own right obviously Ellen uh, right. is at the top of that list. And so I was able to find her fairly easily, especially with social media. Yeah. And it's, it's always a scary one too, because you don't know sometimes when you get a bunch of egos and a bunch of big time athletes all in one expedition, there's almost like a little rivalry. So you don't even know what the relationships were like between the athletes. So it can be a little risky, I guess, to contact them without knowing how they felt about Marco or vice versa. Um, but with Ellen, obviously, that was just an easy one. I'd heard about her and knew about her and all of her climbs in the Himalaya and on Everest. And she was very quick to respond. And I remember it was in January, I want to say of 2016, 
Um, I drove from Arizona up to Colorado, met some friends in Aspen, Glenwood Springs, and went over to Vail. I think Edwards or um, Eagle, I think, and met her in a coffee shop. And that was like one of my first conversations. And obviously, I was just blown away. We talked for a good hour. And she said, well, Jeremy, you can't write this book without getting a hold of Russell Bryce. Um, he was like almost a father figure. And then he was kind of a tough nut to crack, if you will, because he's all over the place. He was still with Himalayan Expeditions. I finally, so I got a hold of Russell. We, we did some email exchanges, but I knew I was going to have to go meet him and talk to him in person. And Ellen's like, oh, just go on one of his expeditions. And I'm like, well, I don't really have $30,000 <laughs> on anything. I don't even have $3,000, but we did connect. One of my, like I took a 10 day break from teaching and flew to Nepal um, on the front end of his expedition season. And so I met him in Kathmandu over the course of several days and we talked for hours each day. And we had already talked a lot leading up to that exchange stuff. But that was my first time in person and just really fleshed out a lot of the details I think that came out in the book. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I was gonna ask you. It, it, you really give vivid, we're right there recreating scenes. And I was like, wait a minute, like who was the person, either Ellen or someone else who like could give you the play-by-play and, and, and then, yeah, it's almost like, it seems like you had been there, which now it's, it's interesting to know that you had. Um, I'm in the book I'm doing, I, I'm, I'm writing about a Russian skier who has an incredible story of immigrating, um, as kind of a forgotten athlete in the Russian system. And he came to Canada on this really wild trip, kind of in 05 and, and showed up at, in Toronto with like tennis shoes and a duffel bag. And eight months later, he was racing in the Torino Olympics for Russia. And then wow. four years later in Vancouver for Canada. So like, you know, just like, wow, how did this, but he talks wow. a million miles an hour with all this energy. And I'm like trying to do the writer thing. Like, what was the color of your carpet? He's <laughs> like, why do, we, why do we need to talk about that, Ryan? Why do you, so yeah, how did you get some of those details and like really make it fun for the reader to like, I'm living this. Yeah, that was a challenging part of the book because you're obviously recreating history, <coughs> excuse me, and you're recreating scenes from 18 years ago, 15 years ago, and people's memories are faulty. Right. And, you know, I asked Ellen, I was like, hey, do you have a diary like from those times? Can you give me that? Like Russell Bryce. So yeah, I was very annoying. Um, you know, there's all <laughs> that persistence versus annoyance and I definitely the annoyance and I but you have to, once I knew I had a book, I mean, Russell Bryce was definitely getting very irritated. Like, why does he care about all these little details? Yeah. Like down to the foot or down to this camp or this color of tent. And I just did the best I could. I, there's still a bunch of questions unanswered for me that people just can't recollect or I couldn't corroborate enough to feel comfortable putting it in there. Yeah. But certainly all these stories, I mean, Ellen had great stuff. The anecdotes from those early expeditions were just gold um, yeah, to, yeah. to create character. And I had to leave some stuff out. I was kind of unsure how to structure the book because if you go to ski towns, you will, some people will know of Marco, but then you'll come across people that you are certain have to have heard about Marco Safredi and they never heard of him. And I, he, I get that even here. Like Jeremy Jones had heard of him, but I'll go talk to three other professional snowboarders and they never heard of him. And so I'm like, well, I don't think I can write this book the way I, you, you can't assume people know him. So I was like, I have to write this book as I got to get the reader to care about him as a human before they're going to care about him disappearing from Everest. Because if I go right into the disappearing of Everest, they're like, well, who cares? We don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> and so that was a challenging part of the book. And so yeah, I did have to ask like the Easter story, 
when Marco called home and realized it was Easter on the Everest expedition with Ellen. And then he got off the phone like a child and wanted to, you know, color eggs and eat chocolate because it was Easter. And Ellen celebrated <laughs> yeah. with how childlike he was. And also his connection with the Sherpas. I think that's a, something you can't really discount is a lot of Western climbers go on these expeditions. And it's not that they look at them as their servants or their employees. Yeah. It's just hard for them to connect with this culture, right? Marco's just like a child. And so they really took a liking to him. And that's where I got the stuff, you know, the first night in Lhasa on their Everest expedition that he was the first person to snowboard in 2001. You know, they, they lost them and they find him skateboarding in Lhasa around these temples. These little kids are chasing him and he's giving little kids rides on his skateboard. I mean, he just had that infectious personality that he could connect with people from all cultures. Um, and I, when you do that, you're talking about a special human being. And he never, like, I just don't understand how someone who's so good at what they do um, is not, it's not on the tip of their tongue to tell everybody, remind everybody how good they are. But I think it just comes down to one of those things when you're that good, you don't need to say anything. I mean, your work speaks for itself. And I, I don't know what Marco would be like in today's age with Red Bull and Instagram accounts. Like, it seems yeah. like any person with a well-run social media platform looks amazing. I don't know if Marco would get into that because he, he just, he didn't really compromise his values. He really just wanted to climb mountains and snowboard down them. He wanted people to pay for him, but he wasn't willing to sacrifice too much about who he is as a person to make that happen. Either you do it my way or I'll just do it another way. It's kind of what he was. I like. wonder if he didn't really realize how good he was because he literally started snowboarding and, you know, a year later he's doing descents that no one had ever done, which is pretty wild. Like he almost might've been that naive. I, I assume maybe not, but yeah, the money thing is actually an interesting um, question I had where, um, and you're, the family you said was kind of a tough, tough to break. How long were you there that you sort of, was it like a 10 day thing? You're like, Oh crap. By the end of this 10 days, I need to like have access and have them be on board with this. Or what was that like to really get them to get on board with you? Well, so I spoke with Valerie, his sister, like my second, no, my last night before we were going to hike to uh, Zermatt, Switzerland. I was like, well, I got to go for it. And I knew I'd been hanging out there for like two weeks, you know, hiking around, poking around. It's Chamonix. It's beautiful. Getting a sense of the place. And I was like, well, I got to go. I, I think I got something here, but I have to go approach a family member. And Rene Robert, the photographer, and then the writer of one of the uh, French language books, I had met with them. And they go, you're just going to have to give it a shot. We'll support you. Um, but they're tough, you know, on the exterior, a little alligator skin. And uh, she was working and she said, come back at six when I'm done with the office and I'll talk to you. But no tape recorder. Um, you got to write everything on notes. And she would write. I would write down. I'd tell her to repeat things. She said, nope, that's your fault. You missed it. <laughs> and you know, I thought she got her soft In English up. or did you have, was she being translated all this time too? You know, so that was part of the reason I was hanging out is that Sometimes like I speak some Spanish from traveling in South America, but it's like travel related Spanish. Yeah. And so I knew she was managing the campground, the family campground that Marco used to manage. I'm staying in a tent for like 14, 15 nights. And I'm just kind of figuring out how good her English is because when I introduce myself, I got to be very careful what I'm doing. Cause if you, if you don't have great language skills, you might misinterpret what my goals are. Right. So I, I sensed that she was, her English was good enough to understand and she wouldn't get too offended. I was able to explain myself before she got offended. And yeah, so we talked, you know, we talked in the office um, that Marco once ran and she gave me a lot of good stuff. I, I, there were tears and I couldn't help but cry. And 
I just walked out of there and I'm like, oh, Jeremy, I don't want to cuss right now, right? Because if it goes on there, but don't mess this up. Like, if you're going to go with this, don't mess this up. Um, yeah. Because this is somebody's brother. And you just brought up a bunch of memories that she probably thought she never had to talk about again. And you're going to have to make her do it, her sister do it, her mom, and or his mom and his dad. And you better be willing to go all the way with this. And so that was the first summer. The big summer was 2018. I went back to another few weeks there. And I connected with the dad in person, met him at one of his salons, he used to cut hair, it was one of his jobs. And we spoke for a good two hours. He invited me to their house. I got to speak some more with him. And then he showed me down like in the basement, all of Marco's belongings that they brought back from uh, Tibet. And the mom would not talk. Um, mm -hmm. That's an important part of this. The mom would not talk. And I respected that. And his other sister, Shudi, uh, she spoke. I, I met with her a little bit and then we would do email exchanges back and forth. So I, I slowly kind of earned my trust with them. I think the critical point was when the dad asked me one time, why do you want to write about my son? And he kind of interjected from my questions. And that was, I had to answer that, I think correctly in his mind to continue this. And I just kind of answered him the heart. I said, listen, I just, he's not like a hero to me. I don't idolize him, but I admire him. And he was a beacon for things I was doing in the early 2000s. And I don't, I don't think the American audience understands your son as they should. And that kind of got it for him. I think just having a little reverence for him and a respect for what he's done. And the fact that there's a little bit void maybe in, in, in snowboarding and climbing and, and American literature, that kind of that genre um, that you think, okay, like I'll keep talking to this guy. And so once we got them going, they did get annoyed. They wouldn't answer me all the time. They're like, you know, get, get your questions out of the way. But that coupled with Russell Bryce, I knew I had the kind of the ball rolling and I, I could write a book at that point. Okay. So a couple of points in the book that left me just kind of, I don't know, frustrated. Um, so I, ho I hope you get excited by this. First one has to do with the dad. So we'll go right into it. Before he goes to Everest the second time, he has like no money. He needs 50 grand. And I think there's a line somewhere in your book where it's kind of like, hey, he would have gone no matter what. So everyone kind of had to get behind him, right? Like he was going to do yeah. it, whether he had the blessing. And I was sitting there like, well, no, they could have said, hey, you really want to do this so bad? You can go find 50 grand. Tough luck, man. So <laughs> what was the story there? Because you didn't really like shed light. The dad definitely could have stopped it. And was there any regret there where it was like, ah, I guess I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, there was a sad moment when I talked to the dad. And he didn't relate it to that specific conversation, but just in general, he said, yes, I bought Marco everything he wanted. And he was relating it back to me as a father too. And he was basically saying, be careful with that. Maybe that's what happened to Marco is why it happened because I, I bought him everything. And I didn't really think about that in those terms until I got the rest of the story done. I was like, oh, I think there's some guilt here that he feels that he, you know, he, he helped lead to this because he supported his expeditions. Now he did work. As at the family campground and he essentially I wrote it in the book he would, at first he would work get grants from like the, the municipality of Chamonix and kind of fund his own things he's going to South America much cheaper we start going to Nepal things get a lot more expensive even though it's a third world country uh just permits and right. sure support logistics so he started to get advances and then he would just work it off the summer after and then it just got to a point where okay is he working this off or are we giving him advance like where are we at right Sure. The, the family could have definitely said no. Russell Bryce, he's on record saying, nope, I don't think it's a good idea. 
The mom did not think it was a good idea. The dad didn't think it was a good idea, but they did have the sense that he was going to do something dangerous and he probably would go. And what if he went with like a cut rate operator? Would that make him more at risk? And yeah, I think they all could have shut it down. Um, but at the same time, they were parents that were very supportive. Uh, they had, he had a good relationship with his parents and yeah, I, I'm just thinking as a parent myself right now, like, Oh dad, I want to go to Harvard. Uh, I don't have the money, but if it's a lifelong dream to go to Harvard, it's almost as a parent, you kind of want to make this happen. And it goes back to when Marco was like, a, was attracted to fish. He had almost like an obsessive quality to whatever he put his mind to. He couldn't get his mind off of it. And he would do it one way or the other. And I think they started to feel, and I think most successful people are like that, right? They're obsessive on their goals and objectives. And I think they just felt he was going to do it. And it's like, well, hell, if he's going to do it, let's give him the most amount of support we can so that we can feel good about it. But you're right. Uh, he could have said no. Yeah. He didn't have the money to do it. And sponsors didn't know how to handle him because, I mean, there's reports in there that he would... He would be sponsored by this one company and then riding a, you know, a different company snowboard the next week. He doesn't understand how sponsorships work. He didn't, he wasn't good at raising money for his objectives. He did, well, he wasn't going to bend his personality to do that. So he did need his parents. Um, but yeah, ultimately the parents did support him and he was, he was surely he was going to work it off when he came back. Uh, but he never came back. She's like the fire We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Cedar Skier Podcast with Jeremy Evans. Just going to take a moment to recognize our sponsors today. This show of the Cedar Skier Podcast is brought to you, of course, by the United States Ski Pole Company. At the United States Ski Pole Company, we are focused on quality, comfort, and performance over price. If you expect the best, we are here to deliver. 100% satisfaction is guaranteed with all of our Nordic skiing products. We don't just make ski poles. We make ski poles You'll enjoy skiing with year after year. I used my USSPC ski poles in my recent win at the Alley Loop 42K Classic. They were awesome. I used them because I know that even if I take a fall, which happens actually semi-frequently with me, although it's it's becoming less and less, um, my ski poles aren't going to break. And uh, ski poles are durable. They're lightweight, uh, great for performance, great price as well. US Ski Pole Company. Get in touch with us, Cedar Skier at gmail.com if you're interested in buying USSPC ski poles. Also, <clears throat> the show is brought to you by Toco, highest quality for best performance. Toco celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Since the foundation, the traditional Swiss brand stands for innovation force, highest quality, and extraordinary performance in the wax and textile care business. The waxes, tools, and care line products provide skis, boards, textiles, and shoes with the highest possible functionality. Correct waxing lets skis and boards glide even more easily. Sharp edges add to the safety. Proper washing and impregnation lets you breathe and keeps you dry. Plus, if you use our products correctly, your favorite items will last longer, be it in snow or in rain and wind. Wherever you are outdoors, you can rely on Toco. Swiss technology stands for best quality, function, and care. Since the founding of Toco, the Toco head office with company management, marketing, product management, and research and development is based in Switzerland. I was out this morning with my Toco Polar Race Gloves. They kept my hands nice and toasty. So thank you, Toco. And now, back to the show. And slowly walk away. And yeah, that, 
that was the one thing. I totally get what you're feeling. I think, you know, I've been the beneficiary as somewhat of an obsessive person myself where my parents are kind of like, we're going to get behind you as much as we can. The 50 grand thing was a little bit to me. I'm like, that's so much money though. I would think as a parent, you'd sort of have a way out. Like, Mark, we really want to help you do this. But like, that is so much money. And maybe, you know, I don't understand the background. He probably is wealthy enough. We're like, yeah, for him, that's more like your parents maybe doing five grand or 10, which is more reasonable or whatever. But uh, yeah, that was definitely, I, I totally, I understand it. But also at the same time, it seems like he really wouldn't have had another way around it. You know, the, the line, like he's going to do it whether we are behind him. It's not, it's like, well, can you really? Like, you can't really just walk over to the Himalayans if you like have nothing in your pocket. But no, that's true. And I think there's also this idea, and this goes into climbing and skiing, there's always the idea of being first. And he wanted to be first. So even though yeah. he didn't ride for glory and fame, he still knew enough that, like, the first to do the Hornbine Kular, no one's done it since. It's a huge feather in whoever's cap does it. He was plagued because in the previous year, you know, the Austrian snowboarder, Dr. Gatz, he was there the day before and he was able to go off the summit and he was. Marco was bummed. I mean, he was really crestfallen that he was not, he was going to lose that moniker to be the first person. Then he found out Dr. Gat unstrapped and it wasn't a continuous descent. So Marco's spirits, uh, you know, got rejuvenated. And then he was the first one to do it from summit to camp. Hey, on well, that point, can, can I yeah. ask you, like, that's pretty insane that, that that snowboard just happened to be there. I mean, was that, did he know that beforehand after making all these months of plans of preparation, he gets there, he's like, what there's another dude trying to snowboard Everest right now. Like, was that sort of a buildup where there was a little bit of, they knew that and it was, okay, we got to get there now and let's make those arrangements. Like, did he know that beforehand? So he knew it because obviously the expeditions there's, there's multiple ones going there on different timelines, but they're crisscrossing a lot. And so okay. he had got word that that was going on. He never, in his video diary that I looked at, he never like mentioned it too much. And then the people around him didn't mention it, but not on record, but they kind of sensed that something was bothering him. He was really antsy. He was well acclimatized and strong. Yeah. He was irritable at the other, that they were going slower because he didn't like them. I think he was irritable. The rest of the team was going slower to acclimatize because that he wanted to be the first to snowboard. And that was on his mind. I did get confirmation there. Um, and of course we're getting into the purity now, right? Dr. Gad didn't use oxygen. Marco did. Marco yeah. made a continuous descent. I mean, he didn't unstrap. And he went from summit to camp where Dr. Gat did unstrap uh, sections and went down to, like the climbing route. So there's all sorts of little nuances there. Um, but certainly like that's on his mind. And if you're going across the world to be the first person to be to, to ride the hornbine, you don't want to let someone else do it. Now, if Marco was around us today and we said, hey, knowing what you know now that no one has skied or snowboarded the hornbine Pular up until 2022, would you have went? I, I bet you he probably would have waited. He yeah, right. He, he might have sensed an urgency at that point. I was just kind of more curious, like, that, that is sort of wild. Like, I wonder when he figured out that other snowboarder was on that first expedition was going to be there at that time, if it was kind of because Everest is such a um, frontier that it, it, you would think that he, he, I guess, in the one sense, he was maybe in a position of I'm going to snowboard Everest. I bet no one's even really thought of this. And then he gets there and it was was it one of those where like he showed up in one of those little villages in Nepal and someone, Hey, did you hear that? Like Gats is here. Like he's going to try and do what? <laughs> That's what, what yeah. I was. There was Jean Troyer, a Swiss guy that lives very close to Chamonix. I spoke to him for the book. He, he made the speed record 
up the Hornbine Japanese Pilar. I talked to him. He had gone to snowboard in Everest in the late 90s. Um, and Marco had contacted him to learn more about the route. Um, so there were definitely a handful of people that were taking their skis and snowboards up sure. there. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know the exact moment he learned that Dr. Yeah. Gat up there, but he knew certainly they're both on the north side of the mountain. And so he knew that it, it was coming. And so he probably, that was the time on Everest too. And I think I wrote that in the book. I did. It was the first Japanese woman, the first American woman, the first paraplegic, the yeah. first blind person. There's all these first, first, first. That was just like the era of Everest. Yeah. And that meant a lot. And I think it didn't mean a lot to Marco for fame, but to be the first to do something is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And I think that would be important to him. So, and the Hornbine is the most cherished route on that mountain. It still has not been skied or snowboarded. So I would think he would wait because he trusted Russ. He, he respected his parents a ton, but he did feel I got to go do it or someone else is going to do it before me. And that's how a lot of extreme athletes accomplish what they accomplish because they have that mindset. Even if it's not reality, that's what they think. Right. And now, okay, the Hornbine, did I, did I say that right? Hornbine? Yeah, that. Hornbine. One of my questions too, it's like, okay, how has no one since he disappeared climbed that? I get that it's ridiculously challenging. What was it? Six people or 12 total have ever done it or whatever. But it's like, yeah, but we're a lot more advanced now too and have better technologies and equipment and everything. So it's like, you would almost think there'd be some crazy obsessive person. It's like, I just got to find that dude who disappeared because it's bothering me. Like I was almost ready to buy my ticket and fly. They're like, I'm just going to walk up there and figure this out. But yeah, Russell Bryce, you know, obviously looking at the telescope and all that, but you just think for him to be like, just go and look yourself you know everest really well like give it a couple of shots you can always turn around right like because he almost seemed like he was on this vendetta where it's like the rest <laughs> of his life was going to be spent looking for it but yeah how has no one really kind of gone down i get that no one's maybe skied it but even that's yeah. a little wild with the guy who did k2 you're like oh he should go claim that at this point yeah, i tried to reach out to him and say hey do you have plans for the hornbine and i haven't heard back yet because of course like i do think it's going to be skied or snowboarded at some point um, I know there's a couple American skiers that have it on their radar. I've heard a couple things through like the pipeline. I don't want to reveal it here that there are plans for someone to go there. I think the problem with the Hornbine is so much attention on Everest is the two main trade routes, the commercial routes. The Hornbine is remote. Uh, there's not a lot of retreat possible. If there's an issue, it's difficult. And so the type of climb that goes to Everest, most part, they're not really interested in the Hornbine. Now, that being said, there were two climbers that were going to go there in May, last May. And I was in co communication with them. And I think that is how you're going to find him. You're going to have to go through the Hornbine in May during the dry season when there's not a lot of snow around. There's still going to be snow, but you know, most likely the least amount. And whatever is remaining of Marco, if my theory proves you know, true, is that they would find it then. And they, they were well aware of the story. They knew I, was, I had written a book and they said they would give me anything, but they got called off. There was like COVID issues, climatization issues. You had to kind of, they were gonna have to sneak into the Chinese side and that was gonna be an issue. And so that could be another problem too going forward is the Chinese side of Everest um, has really tightened its regulations to the point where maybe they're not gonna get as many climbers. So do I think he's gonna be found? If he's up in that couloir and he's remained in that couloir, then yes, some point someone's going to climb through there. If over time, you know, his body has fallen through rockfall and an avalanche, then I think he's never going to be found. But if he is lodged up in there, um, I think he would still be there after all this time. But I don't think we're going to find out unless you go climb in May. 
And I'll, I'll reach back out to those climbers sometime this spring and see if they're going to go back and make another attempt. Um, and then kind of find out, I mean, I'm dying to know as well, just because I think the family would like to know my last conversation with the dad and the sisters was on the lawn and the dad was still trying to talk about hiring a helicopter to get close to the North face. I mean, they want closure. And I think as a parent now of, of a 10 and 12 year old, you know, daughters, it's going to, it's going to eat at you forever. So I think the closure of finding the body will give them a little more peace of mind. I don't think they have any illusion that um, he's still alive even though a lot of people want to believe that. Um, and so I think finding the body would get that closure. Yeah. Well, what was that all about the a helicopter kind of at the end there is how feasible is that? So if, yeah, if you could, that was the other thing, I guess, when that part came up, I was like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. How has someone kind of not just been like, let's just fly a helicopter over and see if we see anything like a Russell Bryce or, I mean, again, cost, all that aside, cause I'm assuming that would be insanely expensive, but I didn't even really realize how high helicopters could go or what that would, what you could do. Can they fly a helicopter like right up to the top of Everest like well, that? I think they can fly the helicopter close. I think this is my dad's a helicopter pilot flew in Vietnam actually. He oh, tells wow. me that hovering, it's not really, flying is not an issue, but you're going so fast so you don't fall out of the sky. So hovering, drones could do it. So there was a National Geographic expedition recently in the last five years, there was a book it came out just by the time my book did about trying to go find, you know, Mallory and oh, not Mallory, Irvine, but yeah. Irvine his partner. And I connected with a couple of climbers and said, Hey, you might be able to get some footage from them. If they catch anything, they're kind of be into the Marco story, but they're such on a different part of the mountain that you have to get something that goes specifically to the hornbine. And so I did talk to a couple uh, photographers that had access to drones. We're like, well, yeah, we could get the drones. You have to probably have two or three different stations on the North face, but the batteries would die out quickly. So you'd almost have like a drone launch from 26,000 feet, one launch from 22, and you'd only have X amount of minutes. And the thing is, is I'm not, I don't have the funding. I don't have the connection yeah. to go get something on that. that. He said the cost would be astronomical. Now, if you're trying to figure out if Mallory was the first to climb Everest, you can probably go find financial backing. If you want to go find an, a relatively unknown snowboarder from Chamonix, um, where his body is, I don't think I'm ever going to get much traction there other than from like a few diehards. Right. So I think it's going to have to take somebody that climbs up there in the springtime to, to answer that final question. It is a little bit wild to think about though, right. How we're like, especially military technology, we're talking about how we can, what we can do with drones, but we can't get someone to just kind of like locate Hey, fly, fly drone, take some pictures of the hornbine cooler. Like, cause really they're, it seems like humans as a species would have that capability, right? And it's kind of like, nope, you just have to walk up there yourself and find out. And so now we have this mystery where it's like, did he just go back into society? Which is obviously the sweet romantic idea. Um, and and I feel like maybe there is that punk rock side of him that like, you know, there there's the part where you, cause you mentioned he would never do that to his mom. I, I'm not saying he doesn't love his mom or anything like that, but almost kind of this weird twisted side of him thinking like, no, this is romantic. It's the little prince. I'm, I have now disappeared, but I'm still around and I'll come say hi to you someday. You know, or, I don't know. It's, it's a dream, well, right? But <laughs> I would say Ellen Miller, you know, Vale, she is one of the more believers. Like, listen, I know he's close with his mom, but if anybody, anybody had the character to do an escape in a society, it would have been Marco Sofredi. Yeah. So, of course, we always have that inkling that maybe it happens, the romantic version, although it's unlikely. But again, the fact that his body has not been found, it does make the story to me more interesting. And I put that in my book trailer 
is like, well, what's the big deal? Like people die all the time. It's like, right, people do die all the time on Everest, but they, somebody saw them fall. Even if they don't yeah. go retrieve the body, they saw them fall. They know what happened. Yeah. What happened to Marco is very mysterious because he was seen on summit day and he was never seen from again. And that is different than nearly every other single death. There were, there've been a couple others that have disappeared. I put that in the book, but you just don't disappear on Everest. You die and no one brings your body down and we know where your body is or most likely is, but to completely disappear and vanish without a single trace, that is rare. That yeah. It makes rare. you put the book, like the book, once you start getting in, you're like, I don't want to put this down. And I think that's part of the, the part um, that really makes that feeling come alive for the reader. I will say the snowboard that appears, the Russian one, you're like, as a reader going, what? No way. And you kept us hanging on the edge of our seat. Like, is he going to just tell us if this is his snowboard? Like, that seems like a very obvious thing to do. We have a picture of the snowboard. Is it the snowboard? Like, can, we can identify this now. And then you finally do. But I was like, wait, where did that snowboard come from then? And so can you kind of explain like what I'm talking about? So is someone listening to this? Like, what in, what in the hell is he talking about? Right yeah, now? So what happened was a year after he disappeared, or well, there's a two year cycle after there was a Russian team that wanted to do it. They were there in 2003 doing a reconnaissance mission to kind of put up a new route on the North face. And then in 2004, they went ahead and climbed that route. Well, I connected with those Russian climbers because I try to talk to everybody who's been up the Hornbein or attempted the Hornbein. And what I did was I contacted the Russian climbers and in like a Facebook message situation, he said, you know, the, he was like, we have, um, a picture of the snowboard that we found in a place called Tillman Meadows. And all of a sudden, like, I went crazy. I was like, you found a snowboard a year later in your reconnaissance mission. He told me a place called Tillman Meadows. I tried to go use Google Earth, which actually kind of helped me a lot. And I'm like, okay, that is actually where the tent was that Marco was supposed to return to the summit. On the summit day, he disappeared. So I'm going crazy. And then my friends are, we're going for a mountain bike ride but I cannot think about anything else but the snowboard. And I don't know if it's between time difference and stuff. I asked him, like, do you have a picture of the snowboard? And he says, yes. But then I say, okay, can you send it to me? And I don't hear from him for like a day. Russia. I, I can't think so. I'm like, holy crap. So I go for a whole day and I find out where Tillman Meadows is. I'm like, well, that's exactly where the elevation of Marco's tent was, the Sherpa that was waiting for him. Or sorry, the yak herder. Um, and I'm like, this is bizarre. So then I started asking everybody that would know why would there a snowboard be up there? Everybody's like, we don't know. We don't know. I contacted the people, the Himalayan database. Well, give me all the snowboard expeditions back to like 1980. Cause the snowboards really weren't around before then the modern snowboard. So then I'm like going crazy about where it could be. And then he finally shows me the picture of the snowboard a day later and it's not a snowboard. And so that, okay, that's a bummer. It's not Marco's snowboard. Cause I was able to compare the pictures with the description, but nobody knows how that snowboard got there. Yeah. So everybody, anybody that would know, I talked to and they go, I have no idea why that snowboard's there. I don't know how it's there. I mean, we found it as kind of like late eighties, early nineties, like kind of vintage version. I was like, and I asked the people on the expedition, I was like, did Marco bring a second snowboard? You know, maybe they just, he brought up their messer. I don't know. Nobody knows why that snowboard was there, but it was found at the elevation of about where less than a few hundred yards for the tent that Marco was supposed to return to that day where it was placed. So it was an older snowboard, even it was one eighties vintage kind of, they, look, by looking at they it. said like late eighties, early nineties, like the bindings and stuff looked a little more 
um, from that era. So it didn't look as modern as Marco's snowboard. Marco's was black and the, the, the binding, like, right? So it was clear it was not Marco's snowboard. Uh, but everybody's like, yeah, we have no idea who snowboard it is. Or at least clear it wasn't the one he had at the top, right? Like clear. from the pictures at the top. It was not the one he had at the top. And that got me thinking, like, what if he had one up there? But I was not able to ever locate and track down. He stashed yeah. one on the way up and was like, I'm going to actually ride down on this snowboard. <laughs> or the, yeah. was the yak herder planning on getting like lessons at the bottom? <laughs> right? Yeah, it's because there was a guy like the Jordi Tosas from Spain. Um, he's a big time climber, snowboarder, skier. He had been up there. I talked to everybody who had a snowboard permit in like a 10 year span. And there goes, not our snowboard. We weren't even over there. We were on this side of the mountain. And Russell Bryce, who knows that mountain better than anybody in the world, he was like, that is bizarre. That is bizarre. They found a snowboard, particularly a year later at the exact same elevation that Marco's tent he was supposed to return to. So that remains a mystery. And yeah, as a writer, people were like, that was not very polite, Jeremy, to give us that little cliffhanger. And I was like, well, I mean, that does kind of add to the story, but I was going to give it to you eventually that, um, you know, that it wasn't Marco's, but it does still add to the intrigue. Like, how did it get there? Is that a typical Marco thing that I'm going to escape in a society, leave a clue, and like you said, come back at some point and say, hey, here I am. Um, now, we don't think that reality-wise it would happen, but if there was a character that would ever try that stunt, it would be Marco. That would be the most insane, you know. If it, if it, so were you the person who kind of broke that, by the way? Like, Russell hadn't known about that snowboard. No one knew about that until you discovered oh, yeah. that right which is also a little crazy because yeah it happened back in yeah 2002 or 2003 and it's like the fact that actually no one had really realized that i mean i i don't know how the documentation of everest you know you mentioned that one character who's lived there for what was it like 40 or 50 years the what was her name um the journalist who spent her whole oh, life right yeah and i was like oh wow that's my next biography it's like what a crazy <laughs> interesting life uh but yeah so maybe maybe that's not that weird that no one had but i kind of thought that's pretty crazy that you're sort of gone on the investigative journalist side too which kind of brings me actually to some questions about just the writing process what uh what was the hardest part about doing this book you know there's the language barrier you just briefly mentioned i think in the credits but like for you what was the hardest part what was the most rewarding part well, I think the hardest part was obviously clearing that hurdle with the family because I didn't know how they'd react to me, a known American writer, kind of a similar age to Marco, what he would be. You know, I was born in 1977, Marco 1979. So that was the hardest part. But from the writing perspective is what we were just talking about is I was fascinated by the research and all the little wormholes I would go down to learn information. And so that was challenging because I had to go from that and be like, okay, you have to start writing though. Like you got, you got to write. Cause I have a tendency, I, I love to research. I love to talk to people. It's one more interview, one more phone call. And I just think, yeah, like that's, so I guess I did break that part of that story. And then all of a sudden the journalist in me got so excited. Like, oh my God, I just found out a bit of information that's never been talked about, which I still did, but I couldn't relate it back to his disappearance. And I think that's what separates my book from everything else that's been written is there was a Transworld snowboarding article written by Trey Cook, who's a help for me, a, a Chamonix writer now lives there, originally from the United States. And he had done something for Transworld snowboarding and he had a nice blow by blow. He talked to Russell Bryce, but he admitted to me he didn't talk to the family that much and he didn't talk to as many people. Right. And so I think it's just the breadth of the reporting, the depth of it. And that was really difficult because at some point you got to stop and figure out how I'm going to write. And so I think that was the most difficult part is, okay, stop researching. You can always do one more interview, but you got to figure out how you're going to tell this tale. 
And that's just kind of, for me as a writer, it's always the hard part is I like to write, but researching gives me a good excuse not to start writing. Uh, and so um, the, finally I said, okay, I think I've done enough interviews. My wife's like, no more trips to Asia, no more trips to Chamonix. Like you can do these phone calls. And uh, so that was kind of the hard part. I would say the most rewarding, honestly, was after the book came out and that there was really only two people that it mattered to me what they felt about the book. Of course, when we write a book, we want everybody to love it, but that's not really why I write it, is Marco's family, you know, do they appreciate and do they like what I wrote? And I certainly sent them a copy and they thanked me and we, we still email back and forth here, usually Valerie, her sister. And then the second person was Tom Hornby himself, who's now in his 90s, he's living in Estes Park, Colorado. We've talked a lot. He was a big help. He absolutely loved the book. You know, he, he just really loved the book. And maybe it's because, it's, you know, Marco disappeared on the Kular named after him. And, you know, he's getting into his late years. And he just kind of felt like how this is how people are going to rem remember me. But that was really important one. So the most rewarding part was first Marco's family saying, go for it. And then my final product, um, they said, thank you, essentially. Because when I left that final day from Chamonix, his sister Valerie is like, okay, go write the book about my brother but it better not be shit is what she said <laughs> that was a lot of pressure because i'm like oh man and then obviously then tom horn by himself is because i'm writing about it well, there's only been you know a dozen people in this world that have been up there and i want to accurately portray the area and what i think probably happened to marco and yeah he loved the book and we've talked um several times and I think I'm going to visit him in February on my way out to Vail, to the Vail Symposium. I'm going to try to stop at Estes Park and meet him in person um, because he took a real liking to the book. So those are the two people that I really cared a lot what they thought. Um, and they both, you know, really endorsed and liked it. So I think that's been the most rewarding is that the people that cared about Marco most or that part of Everest most have said, yep, yeah, good job, Jeremy. And I think that that's the most rewarding. That's really interesting that you say Tom, you know, helped out a lot and he's 90 something. He must be really sharp. Like I, I was almost thinking of trying to get a, see if I could communicate with him, so, you know, in preparation for this article too. But I was like, yeah, can you, can you tell me about what he's like? I mean, obviously oh, he's lived yeah. in cra a crazy and awesome life, but yeah, he, even this quotes in there, I was like, dude, this guy's really, really with it for a, a 90 plus year old dude. Yeah, I would say actually, now that I'm being completely honest, he was the very, very first interview for this book. Okay. I want to say April of 16. Gosh, I gotta go back and look at my notes. I called him. We had like, we had a, it wasn't even a Zoom because Zoom wasn't around then. It's pre COVID. Um, what the heck? Skype. We called on Skype. Yeah. And so we talked for like an hour. And that was after that was coming out of my spring break from my teaching job and me thinking about what to write. So we talked. We first connected then. He gave me some good stuff. And then we kept it going. He connects me with uh, Sharon, the Canadian climber who had been up there. And so he's taken an interest the whole way, but he was also kind of like Russell Bryce, like, okay, Jeremy, enough questions, write the book and then we'll talk. Um, and so, yeah, he's very- He's not a writer. Come on now, people. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's a former, he's just an amazing, amazing person. I mean, he's a living legend of American mountaineering that's still living. He's very sharp, remembers things. And yeah, we talked for a good hour, um, probably about two months ago now. I asked him if he wanted to join me at the Vail Symposium because people would rather hear him or Ella Miller than me. Um, but he said, no, like he's like, even though I sound well, I don't always, you know, I don't like my appearance. It's hard for me to get around, things like that. He said he did go to the, the Alpinist, the premiere of the Alpinist, I think somewhere at a theater outside Boulder. Um, he kind of compared the Alpinist and Mark andre Leclerc with Marco, those two stories he paralleled. He's like, I was watching that film and all I thought about was Marco. Um, 
So yeah, he's just a very sharp mind. And certainly just talking to him, it's like, it's like speaking to a library of mountaineering that nobody else gets access to. And so, yeah, it was very, yeah, he's very welcoming. And so certainly something I can, I can connect you with, and I have some contact information and I know he'd be willing to speak because he really likes the Marco story and obviously how it connects to his legacy and his name. Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, that's so cool. Um, I actually just had a couple more questions on the writing process side where it's interesting. You said the research is where you really, you know, an excuse to not write, but even for me, I was thinking, well, yeah, but your writing is so dictated by your research, you know, like the more, you know, the better you can really see the big picture and then decide what, how you're going to structure things. And so I bet, is that kind of a tricky balance where internally you just have to go, okay, I'm, I just need to start writing. And if I learn more and I have to go back and blow up the book, like it kind of sounds like you did, you know, it's like, yeah. that's just, that's just writing too. And you have to just get over it. Um, is that sort of yeah. how that worked for you? <laughs> I think that's a good way of putting it is eventually you'd say, yep, just start writing. And, you know, I have a storyboard. I have here I want to go. And here are the scenes in each chapter that I think will help. You know, this is what this chapter will be about. Here are the scenes that I can recreate. Um, and certainly I have the little Prince thread. And I'm looking at it to my left right here. I mean, I still look at it. It's a children's book, but it does not belong on a children's bookshelf. I mean, just what really. And a lot of people have asked me, hey, can I borrow your copy? I want to read that book now. And uh, certainly so I, I look at my notes. and I'm just like, all right. That's kind of what helped me. When I got through that part, I was like, let's go right. Um, and I would just say the research, the reason why it's difficult is that you don't want to miss anything. And I would say like no. my first in search of powder is probably 70,000 words. Maybe I actually asked maybe more like 80, 85,000, but I had 400,000 words of notes and interviews I never used. And with this yeah. book, it's a little bit longer, maybe 90,000. And I have like 700,000 words of notes interviews I, I just never used right and so I just think it's like going into a battle you need more artillery than you ever want or ever dream of because you never know what gun what tool you're going right. to need that moment. and so that's really why I get obsessed with the research part because you're writing you're writing and then all of a sudden you're like I wish I had something that could illustrate this or support this right. and I got to have it so this was a fun project and that what I would do is I had all these interviews transcribed and then I had different color highlighters. And this was the first time I've ever done this. And each color highlighter was something different. Either Marco's disappearance, Marco's character, maybe Everest history, Hornbine history. And so I would go through all my interviews just to really familiarize myself again with who I had talked to and just really package that content. And so I used like eight different color. I tried to get two different yellows because I started like running out of colors, essentially. Yeah. But I would go through and I had like a, it was probably about maybe three inches thick of interviews. And I would just go through with the highlighter and each highlighter color was a different um, theme or topic I was going to write about. And that way I could draw on that as I was writing. Well, hey, I'm not, this is really good stuff. But I'm not writing about that right now. I'm writing about blue, you know, and then in two chapters now I'm writing about green. And so that's really how I could really compartmentalize and really stay focused to try to write this particular story. So I don't know if that's how all writers do it. Um, it worked for me on this one, just because there were so many moving parts and so many characters and, recreating history um but that was that was how i did it is there anything from this book that you had to that you know from an interview that isn't in the book that you're like you know the family said you can't say this we'll tell you off the record stuff like that, that obviously you can't tell me what the content is maybe but like just kind of knowing yeah i really wish i could have put this in the book it would change a lot actually well 
I would say the one interview I never got was with the guy from France, Olivier Besson. Um, that, that hurts me as a writer. I tried multiple, multiple times to, to connect with him in Chamonix. He's a guide and he was there on Marco's expedition. Obviously he came late and I kept trying to figure out what his role was. And I had to talk to people on the periphery and go off the permanent information and what Elizabeth Holly had. Um, not getting that interview, I think was just, that hurt the book a little bit, but I respected why he, I mean, I tried and tried. I tried to go to some of his friends and figure out why he doesn't want to talk, but I think it was maybe somewhat similar to Marco's mom is that um, maybe he has some guilt or has some rough feelings. Maybe he was criticized for what he did or didn't do. And I eventually just had to let that go. And I think that's the one thing, not that like something off the record, but that there's a little bit of a hole that I couldn't talk with the other French person that was actually there on that expedition about some of the events. And I think that that's like, I tried and tried and tried, but sometimes as a writer, how many times can I say no? Like Marco's girlfriend, Stephanie, I mean, I wasn't very nice. I, I walked into her clothing shop on the main walking path in Chamonix and said, hi, I'm so-and-so writing a book. And I think she knew I was around Chamonix talking with family members. And she originally agreed to talk with me the next morning. And then she emailed me that night and said, yeah, I, I just don't feel comfortable. And then we try to say, okay, maybe I can do some email questions. And then she just wasn't comfortable because the feelings were still raw, you know, how she felt and very emotional about it. So I think not getting Olivier Besson and his thoughts because he was there when Marco disappeared, even though it was the aftermath. And then I think not being able to speak with the girlfriend, um, Stephanie, because they were quite close. And I understood why they didn't want to speak. But as a journalist, you know, when someone says no once, you know, you, you got to get yeah. five or six times. But eventually you just got to respect that. You can still tell the story, but I feel like it's somewhat incomplete because I, I missed those two perspectives, I guess you could say. The mom... Although I, she was very polite to me and she knew I was writing a book and she was supportive, I wasn't able to get her to speak, but I was able to locate her diary um, that her husband, you know, Marco's dad said it was okay. I used, I, I had a, someone who was fluent in span or sorry, fluent in French uh, translate that for me. And then at least we got some thoughts of the mom. So I think that's a pretty important part. And then obviously when the sister confirmed that the mom used to read that story, the little prince, and that was Marco's favorite book when he was a kid, I think we got enough you know, from that. Um, yeah. But I think those other two people, that was just, not that like it's missing, like I needed it, like the readers need it necessarily. But I think as a, as a journalist, as a writer, not getting those two, two interviews, I think really hurt. That's some really good insight. Um, I really appreciate you like, yeah, like being transparent in that way, you know, and <laughs> yeah, I definitely empathize with you um, in that regard. Uh, do you have any plans for Everest? Are you going to try and like go there and hike it or something? You know, cause like, I mean, this is a big part of your life now too, right? Anytime you write a book, but just people don't really realize, I think the depth of research and time, you know, like you said, 400,000 words maybe of unused or 700,000 words of unused stuff. And what, what, what is not said there is you probably were scoring over all those pages hundreds of times too, going, do I put this in? Do I not put this in? Or, or oh, this reminds me of something else. And now you're flipping through pages. Like, like you knew that material intimately, you know, right? And, yeah. and the time spent there. So is this something to the point now where you're like, I kind of want to just go to Everest. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll hike up to the first base camp or something like that. I've always said that after John Krakauer, when he makes the <laughs> statement, I think when I was in college and he talked, there's this like vivid scene imagery in my mind of reading him where he talked about like going back to his bathroom and he felt like warm carpet on his feet. And I'm like, I never want to be stuck on Everest because it was just that realization of just how 
harsh it could be like cold wise, but yeah. Where are you at? You know, adventure person like you, are you going to do something? You know, I'm not, I'm not a very wealthy man and I'm not one of those guys that's going to go out and raise a bunch of money and give someone else to pay. I mean, obviously I still, I went to South America a few years ago and climbed the 6,000 meter peak. And I went to Nepal in 2018. I actually went with my dad up into the Kumbu and got my first view of Everest. And I, I hiked around there on that short trip where I talked to Russell Bryce. Actually, right when COVID hit in April, I had a, like a 20 day trip with my wife planned and we were going to go to the North Face and visit, but then COVID shut those plans down. So yeah, I'm definitely going to get back there. Um, it's always been my dream to climb a Himalayan peak. Like I said, I'm kind of like a little bit of a dirt bag in that way that if I can go to South America and climb five peaks in three weeks, yeah, that's okay. better than one peak in six weeks, but it's still definitely on my bucket list. I hate that phrase, but you know, a Choyu, like an easier 8,000 meter peak to see how I do at 8,000 meters. Um, I would love to do that. There's a 7,000 meter peak in Western China outside Kashgar called Muska'ata. That's like a pretty, from a technical point of view, it's, it's pretty flat, straightforward. A lot of people ski and snowboard that. Um, I'd be interested in doing something like that, but it's, you know, it's hard. I have 10 and 12 year old daughters. I coach. Um, I, it's not that like my wife doesn't encourage it because she's scared something's going to happen to me, but I'm a dad. And if I yeah. leave for five weeks, I better have a damn good reason. And, <laughs> That is a good reason. She knows that's a yearn, like a burning desire for me. That, uh, but Everest, I don't have this burning desire for Everest. I would do it if someone else paid for it. Um, but that's not like really that. I, I like just to go out and well, I'll go out to the middle of Nevada. Right. Hang out. Like I kind of like not being around people. And when I go out to do these things and I'll go, I go snowboarding by myself a lot, even though my friends ask, cause I just, it's kind of like a little relationship between me and the outdoors. Uh, but certainly I like to go on a Himalayan expedition. Uh, it doesn't have to be Everest. I'd like to get to Pakistan, um, certain something like that. And I just think with the Marco book, it was nice to see how he connected with the, the local people. And I don't think I'll ever be able to get that. So my experience obviously will be kind of more um, superficial, if you will. But I do like to go over to those places and really hang out and, and not do the straight tourist thing. And that can be tough sometimes if you don't have a huge chunk of time. Yeah, that's kind of the bummer about Everest. I'm, I'm a little bit with you too. All my activities, like I, I'm fine with the quality of it. I don't need the big name attached to it. And, and almost that notoriety tends to ruin it. But with Everest, it's almost so famous. It's like, I kind of want to stand on the same ground that Marco stood on or that, that stay at a camp that Edmund Hillary was at or some, some of those famous names. Like there's an element of coolness there where, especially once you write that book, it's like, I kind of want to go to this site and just look around and like pick up the rocks and feel that. But, um, which is kind of cool that the parents got to do that as well. I thought that was interesting and, and maybe, you know, some sense of closure, at least like a realization of where they were at. Last question, and I didn't write this down, so you'll have to. <laughs> this I always get really deep on this, but okay. When I'm I'm writing this book here, that I was telling you about Ivan, and and there's almost I think when you see a story and you go, that's a story. I feel like uh, beneath that, as a writer, the reason it's a story is because there's a message that maybe mm -hmm. you've identified can really, hopefully, be present. And it might take a while for the reader to like identify what the clear theme is, but almost, yeah, the purpose of the book. And so what was the purpose or message of this book? And I know that's sort of two different things, but it's almost the same. Like, like basically when you die and go away, like that book is going to still be around. Like, what do you want the lasting impact to be from it? And the reason you would have written it in the first place? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess I started out writing the book just to learn about Marco and his story. 
And then I ended writing the book about the message that he had for the world, really, and how it ties in the little prince, I guess. But, you know, it's maybe it's been COVID and stuff like that. I've just realized that not everybody is meant to live to 85 years old and die of natural causes. Um, the, I, I'm not saying that he had a death wish, but I'm saying he had a life wish and that he really wanted to live each day to its fullest. And that's very cliche, but it's also very accurate. Yeah. And I think what I would like to get people to, to get from this story is he was courageous, he was brave, he was ambitious, but he was prepared but he also was caring and loving and that's okay. And he was willing to risk it all for himself and what he believed in. He had conviction in what he believed in. And I don't think we have a lot of people always in the world that they'll do some stuff. They'll sacrifice some stuff, but they sacrifice it all. For Marco, I think it was written in the stars for him. He was going to die in the mountains, whether it was when he was 23 or 35 or 50. It was just going to happen. And I don't want people to, to label Marco and think of Marco that he's less than because it happened at 23. Anytime someone dies, it's tragic. But I think for someone like Marco, what's most tragic of all is not living your life at all. And I think that's really the message is, is, is I'm not asking everybody to go climb Everest or snowboard down and or drop off, you know, hundred story buildings and, and pull a parachute at, at story two. It's finding out what you really love in life. You know, find out what you're passionate about and have those convictions and don't compromise. And it's a lot easier when Marco doesn't have a wife and doesn't have a kids and all that kind of stuff. I get it. But I think that's really what you want people to know. I think early when the book came out, maybe in April, I remember the time the book came out, I think outside, there was a couple other Everest books that came out at the same time and they wrote something online. And the writer wrote, if you've never heard of Marco Safredi, comma, the first person to snow down, snowboard down Everest, comma, you're not alone. Something like that, I'm paraphrasing, right? I feel the more accurate way to start that would have been, if you've never heard of Marco Safredi, comma, first person to snowboard uh, from Mount Everest, comma, you should. And I think yeah. that's, that's what it should be. Everybody should know who Marco is because going back to the story you're trying to write, you can't really care about what happened to these people until you care about his people. And I think what Marco stood for, humility, bravery, um, those are everlasting things that go from generation to generation. And although his tool to carry it out was a snowboard and he did it in dangerous places in the Himalaya, it doesn't change the fact that humility and bravery and having ambition and having conviction for what you're passionate about, those are everlasting and those are things we should invest in. And it's undoubtedly it's tragic that he died and left behind a family and sisters and a girlfriend and a big void there. But I tried to leave the book on a somewhat positive note that not everybody's meant to live. It was written the stars. Sometimes the fate maybe is what he stood for is more important than how many years someone lives. And yeah. I think that's is it's not about how long, how many years you live. It's what are people going to remember about you and what you stood for when you go, whenever that is. And I think that's the message from this book. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Cedar Skier Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Go to cedarskier.com to check out some of our other articles and episodes. We are um, always writing about the intersection of sports, philosophy, theology. Sometimes that's our skiologians. Uh, 
corner there. Uh, and uh, pop culture, I guess you would say. So we have shows, interviews with athletes, coaches, former Olympians, uh, leaders in the industry. We like to dig in and ask tough questions. So go to cedarskier.com. You can read our articles, see some past shows. You can also go to Anchor or follow our podcast, the Cedar Skier Podcast, there as well. Thank you to Jesse Thetford for her music here. Um, if you Google Jesse Thetford, she's way more famous than I am, so I'm sure she'll pop up and you can find more of her music that way. All right. We will see you next time. Keep skiing. Keep striving. Once you're ready.